Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from Clyde Hill Publishing, partner and publisher for founders, innovators, thinkers, and tinkerers. Clyde Hill's stable of writers and editors work with these non-traditional authors to help bring their ideas and lessons to life. To learn more about Clyde Hill's services and forthcoming books, visit ClydeHillPublishing.com or follow them on Twitter and LinkedIn. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today we are, what, facing death, (laughs) COVID-19, and the fear, the existential fear of death for us and our loved ones. But fear not, we are bringing in a medical expert so that we can not just spin out of control. Yeah, we can do it gracefully. Exactly. (laughs) Face death gracefully. But I've been really thinking about this a lot because I think one thing that has come from the quarantine and all the warnings and all the news reports is that we've had to really think about not death as an abstract thing with over 100,000 deaths in the United States. And I don't know what the count in Italy is. Do you know roughly? You know, I haven't been really keeping up with it, but I believe it is somewhere between thirty and 40,000. Yeah, so a lot. A lot. A lot for a country that's significantly smaller than the United States, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I've just been thinking, how can we talk about that? Because I think it, it does mean that a lot of us are thinking about the possibility of our own mortality and... Not only that, the mortality of the loved ones that we have in our lives that are more at risk for this thing. And mm-hmm. I thought you and I could wax on, but, you know, bring in an expert first and then go from there is what I thought. So I reached out to a, a very long time trusted source for me, Jim Demain. I'll do a formal introduction in just a minute. But he used to write, I think he still does, used to write this end of life blog. And when I regularly worked for on public radio, whenever we had anything medical or death and dying come up, he was sort of my go-to expert. And I just loved having him on. I loved talking to him. So every time he came into the studio was another great day. And so when I was thinking about this topic, I thought, Jim Demain can help us. (laughs) (laughs) So I reached out to him and we jumped on Skype. And the sound is, you know, not great because we had some technical issues, but I think it's it wasn't so bad that you can't understand him. So I just decided to to go with it anyway. So why don't we start listening to that? Okay. Jim Demain is a retired pulmonary critical care physician, a clinical professor of medicine emeritus at the UW School of Medicine, and an author whose book will be released in September. It's called Finding Dignity, Hope, and Healing at the End. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me on. So I thought I'd have you on because COVID-19 has a lot of us thinking about our own mortality, not only mortality for us, but the mortality of the people that we love. And I thought I'd ask you, what do you think could come of this added contemplation of worry and the consideration of our own death? It's a really interesting question because I think it's affecting so many people in different ways, you know, with the whole COVID-19 pandemic, everybody's kind of gone into a different mode. So unusual because we're social animals, 
and now being told that we need to, I don't like the term social isolation, I use would rather the term physical isolation, that we need to be apart from each other, but we somehow need to stay socially connected. And I, I think some of us have become too socially disconnected. I live in a senior community with an adjacent nursing home, and fortunately, we've been okay without cases or without deaths from COVID. But the daily uh, death report in the newspaper and case report, and then we're hearing uh, national conferences or reports from the CDC. Uh, Dr. Fauci, who I really like very much, has become kind of a rock star in terms of giving us real truthful data and his very learned opinions. But among seniors, that's where the biggest risk is. You know, 25% of the deaths are people from nursing homes, and 90% of the deaths are people that are elderly. So in a lot of ways, we're we're punishing a whole lot of people that will never get ill. (laughs) Because we don't have a vaccine and we can't identify cases very well, we've been way behind on testing. In some sense, we're over-isolating. I mean, I see people out in a park with nobody around and they still have a mask on. And there's no indication for needing that. I mean, if you're socially distant and you're outside, please take your mask off and enjoy the fresh air and enjoy the sunshine. Obviously, until we can start opening up, and this is variable in various communities, the best favor you can do for your mother or your father or somebody senior in your family is to try to protect them by wearing a mask. But psychologically, I think there's a lot of depression, a lot of feeling off balance, and it's it's hard to know how fast to push. New York Times, where they surveyed a whole bunch of epidemiologists about whether they would let their children go to school in the fall or whether how soon they think we should open up. And they were all over the map. Some were, well, I'd start moving out in three months and some say they'd wait a year. So I think it somewhat depends on your own risk preference. What matters the most to you? I put it that way. But one thing you mentioned is that even thinking about death has come to the front of our minds somehow. And that's unusual because when we're young, that's the last thing we think about. You know, we're thinking about life and how we're going to do this or do that or our favorite sports or music or whatever. And now we're having to consider that. And to me, this is an opportune moment. If I can get people to begin to think about what death might mean to them and then consider talking to their loved one, that's all they're going to do. That's great. If they can say, particularly for a senior that's 82 years old, uh, I'm 81, I'll give it another year. <laughs> yeah. You could talk to your spouse or daughter or whoever and say, gosh, you know, if I got this COVID pneumonia and I really got critically ill and they wanted to put me in the ICU, they might say, you know, I don't like the odds because there's a very high mortality in in that group that goes into the ICU. If you can have that conversation and make it clear what your wishes might be in that kind of situation, probably the most legal important thing for you to do is to choose an advocate. Identify that person as being your power of attorney for health care. And you can fill out that form. You can find them online very easily. Get that in place because that's, as a doctor, and I'd be at the bedside and talking to family, 
that's the person that I would turn to would be the advocate. So once you have an advocate lined up and they are a good advocate that understands your heart and can speak well for you and are pretty tough, you know, I think you've got most of your bases covered. But then we need to get on with our lives. I mean, this too will pass. We're going to look back in a couple of years and wonder where we've been. The world will be somewhat different. But I think once we get a vaccine that's effective, we'll gradually get back. Not exactly where we were before, because maybe business models will be different and that kind of thing. But in terms of our daily lives and school and travel and that kind of thing, I think we'll be able to resume normal. It's just this limbo that we're in right now. Yeah. Well, and what about the fear when you there's going to be a certain number of people who listen to you saying, get your advanced directives together. There is something about COVID-19 because on some people you go from healthy to passing away so rapidly. What do you do with the fear of that, that it could happen and it could happen fast? Yeah. Getting in, into a group where you can discuss this is so important because fear will go into depression and people will get very discouraged. And if you self-isolate too much, particularly for seniors, they'll begin to lose mental capacity. Where I live, where people, I think, over-isolated, they really almost don't leave their rooms at all then I think you begin to have mental deterioration and depression. And it's a, it's a significant issue. There's no, no magic bullet to overcome the fears, except to remember that there's less than one out of 100 that die that get the infection. You know, if you're basically young and healthy and don't have morbid obesity or diabetes or some of the other illnesses, and if you're not elderly, the odds are you're going to make it through just fine. The media reports are true that there's been some younger people that have had significant problems with this, but it's a very small group. And a lot of people get the infection and never know they had it, or it's been like a mild cold. So we're used to some things like driving in cars, which you know has a significant mortality rate, but we don't fear that much every time we're in a car. We're going to have to figure out how to talk about it again, how to be in a group, how to find the modes that work for us to deal with those problems. And each person's can be a little different. You've always been a, a real advocate for people recognizing their own mortality, not living in denial, having it be something that you acknowledge that we are all mortal and that's a thing. Why is it good to be aware rather than a person in denial? Well, to a certain extent, denial's healthy. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, we go about our daily lives not thinking about death. And we're all aware that death is out there, but it never truly becomes personal. It becomes personal when we develop a serious illness or where we have a loved one with a serious illness. I kind of look at it that denial is fine uh, most of the time, but periodically we need to face the reality that we're all going to die. The Onion, you know, the humor magazine has a cartoon that shows the world death rate is still at 100 percent. I mean, it's not we're not going to make it out of this world alive. We're all going to have a last breath someday. You know, dying is something that only happens once. Mm -hmm. We don't get any practice at it. So it's foreign territory. It's foreign territory for me, even though as a critical care physician, I've been around it all my life. But I will have a personal death one of these days. I've been alive long enough and around long enough. I guess I'm not afraid of dying because I know it will happen, but it'll still be a unique experience and I don't know how it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for all of us. Yeah. 
Well, how are you doing patience wise? One thing my parents always say is, well, you're going to get free sooner than we're going to get free. I think for the older population, we're just going to have to be very careful. About 20% of the older population that gets the illness becomes very ill. It kind of depends. I mean, uh, you know, if you're 100 years old, your life expectancy isn't that long. So you might say, I'm going to take some risks because I want to go to the market. I want to go visit my family. I'm not going to take stupid risks, but I'm going to take some risks. It's kind of like a mountain climber. You know you might die, but you're going to go do it anyway. There's some risk in life that you just need to need to do. It kind of what matters to you the most, you look at the time you have left. I also want to be careful not to overly isolate. I think some people are so afraid that they're basically just shutting down, and that's a mistake. You've also written about what makes a good death and what makes a bad death. A lot of people look at the deaths that are happening with COVID-19, and they think that is a bad death, that the family can't be there, that the person is alone, that everybody treating them is uh, wrapped up in a hazmat suit. What is your take on that? Yeah, you know, I, I would agree with that. The deaths have been very, very difficult. The family not being able to be there. Unfortunately, a, a lot of the deaths have been in African-Americans, particularly, and Hispanic deaths have been higher than expected also. But the doctors talk about this. I've been to several Zoom conferences where they're discussing management and the intensive care unit. And one thing that they don't want to do is put people into intensive care units that don't have any chance of making it because there's no point at taking somebody that's 90 years old with cancer or another di- you know, serious diagnosis and putting them on life support. Uh, so their palliative care teams are meeting very early on with people as they come into the ERs to have end-of-life discussions. And they're actually encouraging people to make those decisions, sometimes not even offering ventilators and life support. They're doing what's called informed assent rather than informed consent. Informed assent is where you say, you know, we're not going to put your loved ones in the ICU because they really wouldn't have any chance of making it. But we are going to give them the best of care for comfort. They may not make it. It looks like they're near the end of their life. So palliative care teams are often meeting people in emergency rooms. Then they can kick into hospice management or regular hospital ward management where family can be nearby. Most people, when you go down a list of things for a good death, they want what matters to most of them adhered to be listened to what their wishes are. But they want to be comforted. You know, they want family around and they want as much as a home-like environment as possible. It's kind of the opposite of all that during this COVID epidemic where everybody has to be isolated. So in the United States, our country is now not only covered in coronavirus, it is covered in protests for Black Lives Matter. Thousands of people gathering in pretty much any town of any significant size across the entire country. As a doctor, what does that make you think? Well, I certainly support the protests and I support the movement. It's uh, a critical period in our history. As a doctor, though, I have to worry about the lack of physical distancing. There are going to be some upswings. These are usually young people that are out there. They get the disease themselves. It's not likely to be severe. I'm just worried if they bring it home to their grandparents or somebody in their family that's immunosuppressed, that it could cause a lot of guilt and issues down the road. 
for protesters if they can just go get a free test to at least know that they're negative. And if they're going to keep protesting, do it periodically. There are free testing sites. I'm not discouraging protesting, though, because I think it's so, so important. Yeah. Where, for you personally, Jim, where are you finding hope right now in this period of time? Well, the biggest hope will come from people like Dr. Fauci and people that are developing vaccines. Within a year to 18 months, we'll have an effective vaccine. There's some very innovative developments going on. After a vaccine, then our nation will recover and heal. I'm sure we'll get through this. We have a lot more resilience in us than we know about. People get through some pretty horrible things and come out the other side. But I can tell you one funny story about resilience. This lady uh, approached me one day after a memorial service here. And this is in my book, by the way. She had lost two husbands and three children. She was 92 years old. And I was questioning her about how she managed to get through all this. And she laughed and she said, well, my husband had dementia. I would go over every night, sit with him. He didn't recognize me anymore. But we would watch a movie. We'd sit together, hold hands. And he would look at me and say, are we married? And she would say, yes, we are. And he would say, oh, that, that's nice. And then one day he became very ill. And she had to take him over to the Harborview Emergency Room. And it was a Friday night. And you can imagine that things were hectic like they usually are with gunshot wounds and knife wounds and people there that couldn't get care otherwise. Uh, so it was really very hectic in emergency room. But they treated him and brought him back. And he, he remarked to her, you know, that was some party we went to. She said, what? Yeah, I guess it was. And he said, you know, I don't think we ought to invite those people over. <laughs> she was able to see moments in her life that are really very sad, but she was able to see some humor. I think we need to find, we need laughter. We need to lighten up a little bit. Norman Cousins wrote a wonderful book called The Anatomy of an Illness. When he treated his autoimmune illness by watching movies that were funny about laughter, and he was convinced that laughter was in a very important part of his cure. So maybe we ought to turn to those as well. No, that's lovely. Jim DeMaine, his book that's coming out in September is titled Facing Death, Finding Dignity, Hope, and Healing at the End. Thank you, Jim DeMaine, so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Okay, thanks, Katie. Bye-bye. Well, Katie, I feel comforted a little bit by this. And I have to say, I felt like it was a refreshing point of view. It was. Because I feel like so... Um, so many people who are talking about this virus and its effects are on one side or the other of a political issue. I know that it shouldn't be like that, but it comes across that way. Maybe that's not true in as far as what they're feeling, but it comes across like there are the people who are saying, this is no big deal, whatever, I'm just going to go on with my life as it is, I'm not going to worry about it, it's no big deal. And then there are the people who are a little bit more catastrophizing. You know, I feel like there's these two extremes. And I liked listening to him because it felt like he was aware of the of the risks. I mean, he's a, clearly is an expert. He's aware of the risks, but at the same time, he thinks it's very important that we do go on living our lives in a certain way. Obviously, 
taking certain precautions. But it was nice to hear that. Yes, I agree. We we actually talked a little bit about one of the things that he was looking forward to getting back to. (laughs) This isn't included in the interview, but he was saying that he loves playing doubles tennis. And right now, they're only allowing at the place where he lives, which is a independent living facility that's hooked to a nursing home. So he was saying that they're at their facility, they're only allowing singles tennis right now. (laughs) And they have to each player has to play with a different colored ball because you're not supposed to be touching the ball of the other person. Oh my gosh, complex. Which makes tennis extremely complicated. It's kind of a great metaphor for, don't we all want to get back to playing doubles tennis, you know? (laughs) Um, But I mean, before we get too far afield, I just wanted to say that I'm super excited for the fact that Jim has a book out. I've thought for all these years, for the last, I don't know how many decade that I've known him, I've always thought that I wished he had a book out. On his blog, he's always told these great stories that are the lessons that he's learned either from patients or from caregivers, people that he's learned something about dying from. But then he also has, like you were pointing out, this professional medical point of view. So he's great at telling you the funny, interesting story, but also helping you think through what medical options there are and what you might want to say no to, which is interesting because I think, at least in the United States, we're definitely a culture that default to just do whatever you can to keep me alive yeah give me everything and i love that he also points out why in certain circumstances you might not want to do that and then he's also seen these major advancements in technology over his 30 years but he's also seen how we as human beings can't necessarily thoughtfully or ethically keep up with those advancements interesting i'm thrilled that he has a book coming out yeah What's his book called? It's called Facing Death, Finding Dignity, Hope, and Healing at the End of Life. But it's not coming up until September. By September, we're all going to forget that we should have ordered this book. So the publisher, they set up a link that we can put in the show notes that is basically just a link to the book and a way to enter your email address so that when it does come out in September and we've all forgotten, they'll send us a note and say, hey, remember you were interested in this book. So... I can tell you what it is, too, but, you know, you might not remember. It's it's bit.ly, like a bit.ly link, slash facing death. And I'm going to go sign up right after we're done taping this because I don't want to forget to get this book. So Cool. Good deal. We'll have that in the show link notes for you. So tell me more about what you thought about this because I've had a few days to mull it over because I did the interview. What were your reactions? Well, um, I liked his pointing out that this too shall pass. Because when you're living through something like this, it is easy to feel like life will never be the same. And I do think that there will be some lasting changes. Mm -hmm. But I do think that eventually things will come back to more or less normal, you know, and it's, it's very easy to be like, life is it's over. My way of life is over. I don't necessarily think that that's true. I mean, I can see it now in Italy already. People are, whether they should or not, they're starting to go back to life as usual, maybe a little bit too recklessly. So maybe I have to have a different point of view from you being in Seattle where you are still currently locked down, stay-at-home orders still in place. Um, We're in phase 1.5 now, which means that there are certain restaurants that are open now, okay. but you have to sit very far away from each other. I don't really know what all started with phase 1.5. 
I mean, mostly you're still supposed to stay home. All right. Well, it was just nice to hear that point of view from someone who probably knows. I mean, I know he's maybe not an expert in pandemics, but, you know, someone who seems pretty trustworthy. And it's just nice to hear that. And someone who's had a long life, too. Sometimes it's nice to get the perspective of an old person who has lived through wars and other catastrophic events and can say, this too shall pass. It will eventually. Um, so that was nice to hear. I'm curious. We've discussed in the past on this show how I tend to think about mortality more than you. <laughs> yeah. I think it shapes my life a little bit more than it shapes yours. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. I mean, have you found your thinking is any different living in a pandemic than, say, not? Um, I mean, I really think of it in terms of my, my mom and my stepfather. Um, I don't want anyone to die, even people I don't know, but I think about them because the people I care about and they're older. And before it was kind of widely understood in the United States what a huge deal this was, when we in Italy had finally woken up to it, but the United States had not, you know, my mother was planning a trip and going to go here and going to go there. And I was freaking out. And it was one of the few times in my life that I've really, really been worried in that sort of a way about someone being sick, someone that I care about. Mm-hmm. I saw an article, I, I skimmed it in the Atlantic about how the second wave is going to be worse. It was very, it was a very depressing article uh, and about how the, the pandemic is quote, going to win. You know, and he said, because people aren't going to be able to continue this. People have, they've, they've kind of done what they can do as far as the quarantining, the lockdown and all that. And, and I feel that in Italy. I feel like if there were to be another wave in Italy, Italians would not be able to do it again. I don't know how you're feeling over there. Some people would, some people who maybe who are very, very sick and who have no choice, but the majority of people, they're just not going to be able to do it. And more so even in the States where it's all sort of voluntary. And I thought, you know, is something going to happen to my mom? I worry. I worry about her. And I also think, how long is she going to be able to? She's still totally isolating. And it's been how many months? And Well, and Arizona is just going up and up and up. Too, I know, so. I know. So I do think about these things. I don't consider it to be dwelling on mortality. I don't think about it in those terms. I just think about it, something that worries me because I know that she's, you know, a little bit older and I worry about her just like you would worry about a parent who maybe had cancer or heart disease or something like that. So, or was at risk for getting it? So, I mean, I worry a little bit more about my mom's health, but I don't feel like it's changed my larger view on mortality. I don't know. I I can't quite relate to your, um, I don't want to say obsession. <laughs> I wouldn't say obsession. No, it's not an obsession, no. but a preoccupation maybe? No, I... I mean, it's just sort of a, uh, I guess in a loose way, I could say it's just a constant framework Yeah. of life for me. In what way is it a constant framework? Like, how does that manifest? That I'm very aware that things will end or that relationships will end over time. Not, and I'm not talking just we naturally drift apart, but that sooner or later, one of the two people will be gone. Okay. I'm just very aware of that as a general framework of how life works. And does that change the way you behave? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) But how 
is a question for my therapist to answer. No, I, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it does in a way. Yeah, of course, of course it it does. But in, in more ways than, than we could probably address here today. You don't make friends with very old people. No, that's not true. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's not true at all. I think I, I just have a, a, maybe a preciousness about every single time we get together. Okay. That maybe other people don't have. Yeah, see, I can't think like that. I can't. I just can't because it just makes me too sad and it makes me anxious uh, to think like maybe this is the last time I'm ever. I couldn't. I just I couldn't handle it. I just don't go there. What I liked that Jim said was so casually that was so lovely, which was we only die once and we get no practice at it. Yeah. And we have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. And that's just the fact of the matter and even though he's been in medicine for over 30 years he still says i have an understanding of it but i don't have an understanding of what it's like personally yeah and i'll only get that once something about the way he talks about it is it's just much more normative you know like kind of takes it out of this you know looming man with the scythe (laughs) Uh, image into just sort of like eh, it's just another day yeah of what happens just another experience yeah I also like how he said you know it's okay to be in denial to a certain extent yeah that is good for you to a certain extent that yeah I mean if you sit there and think I'm gonna go walk across the street I could get hit by a car it could easily happen that's not going to bring anything to your life that's not going to no that's not going to enrich your life. Well, and that's the thing that's so interesting about this illness is I think that people have been thinking more about that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to the grocery store. Is this going to be the time that I make the mistake of touching something and then wiping my face and as a result I die? You know, I think that people are have been thinking more that way, which is part of the reason why I wanted to have him on. Yeah, I imagine what it was like during the plague. Oh my gosh, yeah. When it was like a huge percentage of the population, like 80% of the population died. I know, and then you think about Shakespeare going about his business writing plays and stuff in the midst of all that. It's just, it's just a totally different understanding. I believe Shakespeare had a son that died. I believe of the plague, but I'm not totally sure. Hmm. Is that wrong? I don't know. I don't know. But I know he wrote something. The Merchant of Venice, maybe? He wrote a play during it. I can't remember which play it was. And I, I want to say that Newton, he came up with one of his great discoveries during quarantine, during a quarantine. But yes, I do think that I live under a certain amount of denial but it serves me. <laughs> <laughs> it serves you and serves you well. Well, it may, I, I, I live a pretty happy life. Yeah. So I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. <laughs> Very good. And I mean, I have lost people, a lot of people recently. Yes. And it's always a tragedy. It's always painful. But I don't feel that my attitude towards death has made it worse. Right. Right. But interestingly... I was just thinking as we were talking when you said you only die once. I don't know why that made me think of it. The last time I saw both of my grandmothers and my father, I knew it was the last time I was going to see them. I knew it. Now, I did not feel that way about my sister who died, who who died at 49. And I did not feel that way about my nephew who died at 26. So I'm not saying I'm... I'm, you know, I'm a seer, a psychic. Psychic, No, but I mean, obviously (laughs) they were old, they were unwell. I could feel 
that they were at the end. Mm-hmm. And obviously being someone who lives far away, it wasn't like I was going to see them the next week. I knew it would be several months or a year until the next time I was back. So, mm-hmm. so, but I'm happy that I felt that because I'm happy that, you know, that last time I hugged all three of them, I did it with the sort of knowledge that it was probably the last time I was going to see them. And that does give a certain amount of comfort. Yeah. And sort of closure to the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A good ending. Yeah. As Jim DeMaine would say. <laughs> well, we should probably leave it there, right? Yeah. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and until next time, remember, we really would love to hear what kind of thoughts you're having during this period of time whether it be about COVID or the protests going on in the United States or wherever you are, whatever you're feeling as you rattle around your house, we would love to hear from you wherever you are in the world. So send us a voice memo to bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com. And we will air uh, those as they come in. We've gotten a couple good ones already. So send in your thoughts, anything, loneliness, happiness, whatever you're doing, what you're writing, what you're thinking about what you're creating, what you're noticing, all those things. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. Thanks to Clyde Hill Publishing for supporting The Bittersweet Life. Remember to click the link in the show notes and sign up to be notified when Jim DeMaine's book is released in September. The title of his book is Facing Death, Finding Dignity, Hope, and Healing at the End a book I cannot wait to read. Thank you also to those of you who reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere this week. If you've never reviewed the show and you love it, please take a minute or two to tell us your thoughts. We may even share your comments on our social media. And thank you to Tyler, Heather, and Valerie for your financial contribution this week. We can't do it without you. And one final thanks to Jody Rick at The Lost Laboratory. She's our podcast logo designer And she worked with me this week to update the banners and the logos for our social media and for bonus episodes that we're going to be releasing soon. Thank you so much for the hard work. We really appreciate it. If you want to check out her new designs, visit us on Twitter at BittersweetPod or find me on Twitter at Katie Sewell. And until Thursday, thanks so much for being with us. (laughs) Bye-bye.